I didn't want running to be for me this thing where I went three years really, really hard and just then after that just signed off. I wanted running to be sustainable, um, and that's what I tell a lot of the athletes that I coach. It's not a one-year thing; uh, it's something that you want to do. It's a uh, lifelong commitment. So that's what I wanted my running to be. Um, and uh, for me, I I knew I know where you know where my my talent level is, and I also know that in order for me to get to that next level, I need needed to work really hard. And I knew eventually injuries were going to come along. Um, so, for me, the hardest thing was trying to stay motivated and stay in the game. You know, even you know, I think after working a full day, you've got a lot of stuff going on, and trying to make sure that you know you're finding time for yourself, finding time for others, and to, to do all these other little things that you know regular people do. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. This week's episode is with Ruben Sansa. Ruben and I, we go back a ways. When I was a senior at Stonehill College, we recruited him pretty hard to come run at our school. He ultimately ended up going to our rival, UMass Lowell, where he went on to have a great collegiate career as a four-time All-American and three-time New England champion. It turned out to be the right choice for him as Ruben now works at his alma mater as the Director of Student Life and Wellbeing. After college, Ruben made some big jumps as an athlete. In 2011, he represented his home country of Cape Verde in the marathon at the World Championships in South Korea, and the following year, he competed in the 5,000 meters at the Olympic Games in London. In fact, it was during those Olympics that I first spent some meaningful time with Ruben and got to know him a little better. Ruben has also finished in the top 25 of the Boston Marathon twice and still competes regularly on the New England road racing scene. In August, he and his five-year-old son Grayson broke the Guinness World Record for running a mile with a stroller, clocking a 432.2 at the High Street Mile in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Even though he's five years younger than me, Ruben is someone I look up to for the example he sets through his actions. He works incredibly hard, makes time for the people and pursuits he cares most about, and he does it all with humility. In this conversation, we talked about his recent Guinness World Record and how he shares running with his son. Ruben told me about growing up in Cape Verde, moving to the U.S. when he was 12 years old, and what it was like settling into the Dorchester and Roxbury neighborhoods of Boston. We discussed his experience running in high school and some of the challenges of being a distance runner in the inner city, why he chose to run at UMass Lowell and his relationship to coach Gary Gardner, and how he was thinking about his pursuit of competitive running after college. Ruben also explained to me how his relationship to running has evolved over the years and how he fits training at a high level in around family and a full-time job establishing his nonprofit foundation that focuses on integrating sports and academics to make a sustainable impact in Cape Verde, and so much more. Before we get into it, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I want to tell you about the new Fresh Foam X More V4. 
I've been logging miles in this shoe for the past couple weeks now, and it's become a favorite of mine for recovery runs on the road. It's packed with plenty of plush foam underfoot, making it a perfect option for when I'm feeling a little beat up and want some extra protection between my foot and the road. The craziest thing about this shoe, however, is how responsive it is for how much cushion is packed into it. It's rather lively, which is rare for a max cushion shoe, and I, for one, really love it. The Fresh Foam X More V4 is available now on NewBalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy my conversation with Ruben Sansa. You are the second UMass Lowell alum to join me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. You are someone whose career I've been following since you were in high school, really. Um, You're a John D. O'Brien in Boston. We recruited you at Stonehill. Unfortunately, we did not land you and you went to our rival school. Uh, UMass Lowell had a great career there. I've enjoyed following it for the past couple of decades now, which sounds really crazy to say. It makes us uh, both seem rather old at this point, but it is a real honor to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to, to be on the show with you. I'm a, I'm a listener of the podcast every morning, so I appreciate uh, being on the show. I'm really excited to dive deeper into your story because I know a lot of surface level details, like where you went to school, times that you've run, things that you've accomplished. We got to spend some time together in 2012 at the Olympic Games in London, which I certainly want to talk about. But where I want to jump in is something that happened most recently, and I shared my newsletter just a few weeks back. You and your son broke the Guinness World Record for the fastest mile ever run pushing a stroller and you went 432 was it if i'm not mistaken yes so uh my son and i we've been toying with the idea of uh perhaps trying a road race and we did one in april where um i believe we just kind of we ran about 520s for a former miler and then one other time we did a 5k and we ended up going the wrong direction even though we were up by a good you know minute or you know, at least 200 meters into the uh, winning the race. So uh, we didn't do that well. And I said, hey, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll, you know, later in the summer, I'll try to do a real race. And it just happened that I looked up what the record was for the road mile that I was doing. And I saw that the record was, I think it was somewhere in the 440s. Um, so I said, you know, I think I might be able to do that. So I just tried it out and and got the got the record. It hasn't been uh, ratified yet, but uh, we're waiting on that from the Guinness uh, World Record. Was Grayson really excited to tackle that with you? Did the idea of getting a, a record in a race um, really excite him at all? Or, I mean, did he not care either way? I don't think he knew or knows what the rec- what it means to hold a record. So I was trying to explain that to him. But I think for him, uh, the most exciting thing is actually uh, the competitive side of it, of actually racing, like getting in the stroller. And he only knows one thing. He doesn't know times. He doesn't know distance. He knows rate, like going fast or slow. So whenever we get in the stroller, 
he's always asking me, go faster, go faster, go faster. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to show you what fast is. So we got in the race. What was his reaction afterward? Because he hadn't gone that fast with you. I mean, you're ripping down the road here at what, like 13, 14 miles an hour. And, you know, typically, you know, you're not, you're not going that fast. You might be going like nine, 10, if you're running kind of easy, maybe 11, if you're pushing it a little bit. But I mean, that's like flying in a stroller. Did he feel like he was just on an amusement park ride or what was it like for him? I think he was just normal. He wasn't even, you know, screaming or jumping around. He was just him, you know, himself. And actually about two or three weeks before that, we were doing an eight mile run. Um, we had just crossed the line from Salisbury to Seabrook, New Hampshire. And there were some kids on their bikes and they asked us, I asked the kids, I said, do you want to race us? And I asked Grayson, do you want to race them for maybe 100 meters or 150 meters? I know he doesn't really know meters, but he said, yes, yes, let's do it. So we lined up and we were pretty close to the kids on the bike. And uh, I just got a quick split on my watch so I can look at how fast we were going once I got home. And uh, we, we reached uh, the speed of 407 mile during that 150 meter stretch or so. So from that time, I said to myself, I know I'm, I'm pretty fit. You know, I'm training for the uh, Hartford Marathon in a couple of weeks. So I said, I know that if I can do that 407 pace for 150 meters, that's basically like a regular stride when you're you know, training for 5K or whatever. So um, I knew that I, all I had to do was just basically, you know, push the stroller, get a really big push at the start and just maintain and relax. Um, at that time, I was I was kind of I was thinking, I, I think 440 is definitely possible. What was it like to share that experience with him? Because as runners, for most of us, I mean, you and I ran in high school and college. We know what it's like to be a part of a team. But certainly post-collegiately, you're doing a lot of your training by yourself. Your racing is largely by yourself. But here, you got to go after this, this goal, tackle this challenge with your son and share in that with him. And it's something that you'll be able to talk about and cherish forever. So I'd love to just understand that aspect of it a little bit more. It, it was pretty cool. Uh, I think... You know, at the moment when it happened, um, you know, we didn't think anything too special out of it um, other than just us, you know, going on a stroller run like we usually do. But I think afterwards, uh, you know, when we had like the media, you know, Channel 5 came to our house and I had to explain to him, like, this is the reason why they're here. You know, you and I, we, we did a really fast run and now they're here to interview you and I. So I think it kind of started to become a little bit more special. And then I would show him pictures and then I would show him the actual video. And then I think he actually started, you know, smiling and understanding what was happening and seeing all the other, um, you know, the other runners uh, behind us. Uh, so that was definitely a really uh, unique experience for us um, that I think we'll, we'll both remember for a very long time. Now he's five years old, so he's obviously not really, you know, running or training himself, but is he interested in your pursuit of it? And has he shown interest in wanting to be a runner himself at some point, if he, not now? Yes, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, last year we, uh, uh, last year we actually did some, some training classes with him, with the, uh, greater low world runners. They have a youth track club in Tuxbury. 
So uh, he started going there doing, you know, drills. He did, he did everything from sprinting to distance, you know, throwing and jumping. So he likes, he likes sports in general. And um, he does karate. He does ice hockey. Um, he's done baseball. Uh, so he likes to, and now he's riding his bike a lot, which is pretty cool because he's too big for the stroller now. So he uh, goes with me on my uh, easy runs while he's on the bike. So, it's but he's, uh, he's pretty active. That. It's amazing that you two can share that together and that it will evolve over time. It's gone from the stroller to the bike. And, you know, who knows a few years from now, if he's really into it, maybe you guys can go out on some actual runs together. He does love running, and um, at times he's come from school, and he would tell me that certain kids said that they were the fastest in his in his class, and he would argue with them, saying that he was the fastest. Um, so every time he gets a chance to sprint around uh, around the house, he's he's going for it. And uh, on my end, I'm just trying to you know tell him, hey, you gotta you gotta pace yourself. Because he gets really, really tired, and then he just stops, and then you know he'll get on the ground and start crying because he's not feeling great. But I, uh, I've been trying to just teach him a couple of things. So, you know, there's this thing called pacing. Uh, you go a little slower, and then you can go for a very long time. So that's been kind of like pretty interesting. And now he he actually understands it, which is pretty cool because he gets to see me do it. Um, so that's been a really fun aspect. It sounds like he's got some natural competitiveness too in him. So the apple really didn't fall too far from the tree in that respect. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, we're all pretty competitive. Um, my wife uh, played tennis in, in high school and she played, uh, she also played basketball and on, you know, on both, both of our, especially on, on my wife's uh, family, they, they watch a lot of sports. So sports is always on TV there. Um, but he's he's very competitive in the things that he does, and you know we're always if if you want to ask him to do something, just ask him how fast he can do it, and then boom, it's he's on it. Game on. Yes, I'm really interested in just where you're at at this point of your life as it relates to your relationship with running. You're 35 years old. You're a dad. You're a husband. You work full time, and you train as hard or harder than 99.9% of the people that I know. You just mentioned how you're a few weeks away from the Hartford Marathon. I've been following your training on Strava for the last couple of years. I mean, you really haven't slowed down or missed a beat. You're putting in big mileage weeks, heavy workouts, still have big goals that you want to chase. How are you thinking about your pursuit of competitive running at this point of your life? I, I think with, um, you know, going back to, to college running, I was always you know, pretty busy. Uh, I was not the regular just student athlete. I was always involved in so many other different things. You know, I was in the residence hall council. I was um, I was in student government. I um, you know I was finance chair for many different things on campus. So I was always like uh, pretty busy, and to me that was important because um, I didn't want to have that kind of thing where in college where the whole thing the, the only thing I focused on was running so I wanted to, to kind of diversify the type of activities that I was doing you know the friends that I had so once I left college um, you know I still you know I still kept running and um, I also you know when I talked to my my coach at the time Gary and we talked about you know I looked at different paths that I could take to continue my uh, 
my running post collegiately. And I actually, um, I checked out a couple of uh, professional, semi-professional or professional running clubs here in the U.S., made some trips. And unfortunately, um, you know, I was not, I guess, probably say good enough for them. Um, and I was, you know, and that, that was okay. You know, I, I knew where I was as far as like my limits. And I knew it was kind of like a push to really get into one of those uh, professional training groups here in the U.S. Um, but when that didn't really happen, I, um, you know, came back home and I, and I, fin- I got my master's degree um, around that time. Uh, and I, uh, I uh, basically got a full-time job here. Actually, no, before getting my full-time job, I traveled to Colorado where I was able to, uh, to train with some professional athletes there. I stayed there for three months. And lucky enough, I was able to train with, uh, with uh, James Carney, uh, Benito Willis. Who, you know, they both were in Boulder at the time. And while I was in Boulder, uh, I was basically taking notes, seeing everything that they did, you know, how they recovered, how they trained, uh, how they took care of their bodies, how they planned the, their training weeks, uh, their racing weeks. And I was basically, you know, doing a lot of learning from them. And that was probably one of the, one of my highlights in my running career, being so close to, you know, great runners like Benita and, and James and being able to really learn what they were doing. And uh, one, once I came back um, to the Northeast of New England, I was given a full-time job opportunity. I was actually planning on staying in Colorado for a little longer. Um, but uh, UMass Lowell called me and they gave me a, you know, they had a job that they wanted me to apply for. I was the right, I was the right fit for the job. And I said, Hey, I guess I'm going back to New England. And when I came back to New England, I sort of had, you know, some of the recipe of what the professional runners did. And I said, I'm going to, you know, do it sort of like the old school, the hard way. I'm going to try to get in my mileage, uh, get in my training. And I'm also, I want to try to make sure that I work full time. Uh, because I also didn't want to put myself in a position where, I was putting all my eggs in one basket as far as running. And then, you know, five, 10 years later and say, oh, I don't actually have a, some other career that, uh, that I can rely on to whether start a family or to, you know, to help out my family. So it was a combination of both. Um, it's not something that I, def- I recommend to a lot of people. It takes a lot of really, really hard work. And I think my coach in college, you know, Gary, he explained that, you know, pretty well to me at the time when I was trying to make those decisions that, you know, it's going to take a lot. And so I knew uh, what I was getting myself into, that it was going to require a tremendous amount of work. And when I say, I mean, you know, I, I do, I'm a high mileage guy. I've been a high mileage person since I was a sophomore in, in high school, I mean, in college. So doing high mileage in training for the marathon and while having a full-time job, it's, and, and the other thing, I think it's really important for people to, to notice is that living in New England also where when you're training for marathons, let's say Boston at 4.30 in the afternoon here, it's, it's dark. So you could potentially go to, work, uh, go to work in the morning while it's sort of dark out and come back from work and it's still dark out. And you've got to find a way to, to do your training because the weather is, is not the easiest weather to train in. Um, it gets dark. We've got snow. So there, there, there's a combination of a lot of different variables uh, that make it extremely hard. And I can definitely understand why someone would say, hey, you know what, I'll just do something else, uh, you know, do low miles or, or just not 
do a full-time job and try to pursue this running thing uh, pretty seriously. But when I was coming out of college, you know, I had done so much improvement. I went from being a, a 10, 1009 high school two-miler to then I was coming out of college being UMass Lowell's first person to break 14 minutes in the 5K. So I felt like I had so much left in me that I didn't want to give up running. But I also knew that in order for me to keep running, have a full-time job and dedicate myself to it, it was it was not going to be very easy. So a lot of uh, pretty late nights uh, doing training. I, I won't mention that, you know, what times I was up, you know, training for my first Boston Marathon, but I think the people at Planet Fitness knew me pretty well. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Let's press pause right here. One thing I want to go back to before we get too far along in this conversation is the time that you spent in Colorado. You mentioned being in the presence of James Carney and Benita Willis and just taking notes and learning lessons from them. What were some of the specific lessons that you learned from them that you then took back with you to Massachusetts and applied to your approach moving forward? I think, um, you know, being able to, um, I think one thing that I noticed right away was recovery. I mean, that was like, uh, hard days were hard, but then the recovery days were, were very easy. Uh, I noticed that, uh, I think my, my first run, um, we would sometimes, uh, you know, they would pick me up and all of us, we would drive up the mountain, uh, you know, maybe seven, 8,000 feet. And we would do very easy, you know, 25 minutes out, 25 minutes back. I think the first time I did that, I said, oh, this is like, this is easy. I can, I can, I can do this all day long, you know, but it was just a very, very easy run, uh, easy pace where we can talk, we can have fun, get, get our minds off of running. But then I did notice that, you know, when it came to the, the workouts, the workouts were, you know, they're pretty hard. <laughs> running 430s mile repeats at, at 5,000 feet is not, is not easy or even doing, you know, doing tempo runs, uh, going, you know, five, five twenty uh, while you're going on slide uphills, or even trying to do those 20 mile, you know, 20 mile runs at, at mags at close to six minute pace when it's really hot out there. So, um, I think some of the lessons that I learned was just to take the, some easy runs pretty easy and, uh, and focus a lot on the workout days. But I also, I did notice that they, they have a kind of like a, a balance of, everything that they do um to be an athlete you've got to look at every every and i'm not i'm not a professional athlete um but as a professional athlete you've got to look at all aspects of your training so for example when you're looking at what you're eating just taking the time to go to the grocery store and finding the right products that you want to eat you know the right food uh the right drinks doing the research i think all of that are things that you have to do now, I'm not saying I do that because I'm obviously I'm not in a position to do every single thing that they were able to do. But what I try to do is to carry that, you know, some of those recipes and apply apply them to where they fit in my life. Um, I'm not a, at a you know, position where I can spend hours, you know, kind of like napping during the day. I don't do that. And that's something that, you know, I would do when I was in Boulder. We would, you know, actually take you know, after our morning session, we would take a nice nap. So I, I do that sometimes, maybe on weekends here when I can, um, but it's not something that I can do on an everyday basis. When you moved back to Massachusetts, took the job at 
UMass Lowell, decided you were going to make this running thing work amongst everything else that you were committing yourself to. What were your goals? Because that was probably what, around 2010, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. So, um, yeah. So around there, you know, I still, I had not run a marathon yet. Um, After I I came back, I actually came back around, I want to say, uh, yes, fall of, of, just before the the end of the summer in 2012, 2011, actually. And at the time, you know, I had an idea. I said, I know I want to, I'd like to run a marathon um, eventually. So um, was it 2010 or 11? I'm trying to remember the year. I'm trying to remember if I had done Rotterdam before that. Um, I honestly cannot remember. <laughs> but I knew that once I came back and I started a full-time job, um, that I want to just keep things, you know, I want to think long-term. Um, not just, I, I didn't want running to be, for me, this thing where I went three years really, really hard and just then after that just signed off. I wanted running to be sustainable. Um, and that's what I tell a lot of the athletes that I coach. It's not a one year thing. Uh, it's something that you want to do. It's a uh, lifelong commitment. So that's what I wanted my running to be. Um, and, uh, for me, I, I knew, I know where, you know, where my, my talent level is. And I also know that in order for me to get to that next level, I need, needed to work really hard. And I knew eventually injuries were going to come along. Um, so for me, uh, you know, the, the hardest thing was trying to stay motivated and stay in the game. You know, even, you know, I think after working a full day, you've got a lot of stuff going on and trying to make sure that, you know, you're finding time for yourself, finding time for others and to, to do all these other little things that, you know, regular people do. So, um, but at the same time, I knew that, Hey, you know, I just went to Boulder. I'm really excited to, to start racing. You know, that summer uh, after I came back from Boulder, I had my, I had my 10 K road PR. Um, so I knew I was, you know, I was just going to try to do it. And for me, it was really, really important that, that those first couple of months that I was back in new England working full time, that I set the tone to what I knew that I could do, because if things went really, really bad working full time and trying to run, then I knew I was in trouble. So I kind of just took, took the time, you know, I got an apartment not too far from, from work where I could still you know, do my runs. A lot of my runs were alone at night. And that's the other thing too, when you are, when you've got this irregular schedule, you know, you're not on the same pattern as everyone else. So a lot of the times you're just running on your own. There's no, Hey, can we meet somewhere, drive half hour? Because you're basically trying to get your run done as quick as possible so you can get dinner and go to bed. <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of planning involved or driving to meet a friend to do, to, to do a run, maybe on the weekends, but um, on a regular basis now. And were you still being coached by Gary Gardner, who was your college coach at UMass Lowell those first few years out of school? Yes. Um, so Gary still helped me. Uh, you know, the program at UMass Lowell was also a lot smaller back then. And um, Gary was helping me. I, I would send him some of the workouts that I was doing. And then also Nate, uh, you know, he was also training a lot at the time. So we would do, we'd, you know, throw some things together. And uh, sometimes Nate and I would do workouts together. 
and Nate would give me sort of like, hey, you know, if you can do this in a workout, you should be able to do do this in a race. So, talk to me a bit about balancing it all right now. Just as an athlete who's still training hard, someone who's working full time, and also being a family man. Uh, there's only 24 hours in a day. You mentioned how you know one of the early lessons you learned after college is how important recovery is and just taking care of yourself and your body. I mean, I know it's never going to be perfect, and everyone's recipe is going to be a little bit different. But for you, like, how does it all fit together at this point of your life? Um, I wouldn't say it's. It's easy. I mean, I, I do think it gets easier over time, but it's still pretty hard at whatever time period you are, whether you're 23, 25, 30, or, you know, or at my age, 35. Um, but I think for me, the one thing that's been really helpful is being able to know uh, and plan, um, plan races, but also know like, hey, I can do this. Like if I, if I go home and things are just not working out logistically, and I'm just exa- exhausted, and I'm going to take a zero for the day. It's not going to happen. But um, it, I, I have to kind of look at it from a perspective of, you know, um, I have to make efforts on my part. Uh, so sometimes if I've, if I've got to wake up at, you know, at 5 o'clock, then I've got to wake up at 5 o'clock. But uh, I think a couple of things that make it, you know, more difficult is one, you know, you're spending a lot of time at work, obviously. And then there's, there's a, I drive about an hour, an hour to 45 minutes to work each way. So that adds on a little bit more. Uh, you know, thankfully my, my wife, she's, uh, she's pretty active too. So we try to balance things at home, uh, with, uh, you know, with our son. Um, like right now, for example, she's going on a run or going to the gym then I'm going to be waiting at the door with my shoes ready to take off as soon as she comes back in the house. So vice versa. And we've got to plan everything from, you know, who's making breakfast or, or dropping off Grayson at, at school. So we do try to plan all those things ahead. Um, but I would say it's definitely, uh, there's not a whole lot of week, week, weekdays. There's not a whole lot of flexibility. Like we're not, you know, doing things out of the ordinary, uh, on weekends, we try to do a little bit more, um, but I'm still waking up, you know, early to try to get things done. Uh, but it's definitely, it's challenging. Another thing I'm interested in, because I'm kind of here myself, even though I'm a little bit older than you, is what keeps you training hard and racing for you at 35 years old, having been doing this for like 20 years and never having had it been your profession where this is how, you know, you're putting food on the table and providing for your family. Cause I'm sure we both know a lot of people who we grew up with, trained with in high school and college who maybe did it for a few years out of school while they're in their early twenties, didn't have many responsibilities. And then just, you know, other things took priority, but Speaking for myself, and I know for you, just having followed your career, I mean, yeah, injuries and, you know, things happen where you miss some time, but, you know, we've never really stopped. Um, Like, we've always had this as part of our life where, you know, we're aiming for a goal and then we're going to train hard for it. um, And we've, we've never really, never really stepped back from it. Like, what keeps you going? And have you ever thought of just giving it up at any point and saying like, you know what, I'm just not going to race anymore, do workouts. I'll jog, you know, three to five miles a few times a week and leave it at that. I think the one thing that running has really helped me is just balance. 
I feel like as a as a person in general, it has helped my my well being, uh, my health, and it keeps me it keeps me pretty sharp. It keeps me on a routine as a person, so I'm never bored at all. <laughs> and um, the other thing too, I think is really important is when I started run racing. You know, you do road races. You know, you earn prize money and all that stuff. When I was working full time. I didn't have any pressure that some of the semi-professional athletes might might have, uh, you know, having to travel to races or pay. I could pay my flight to go because I actually was now working full time. If I wanted to go somewhere, I could go in and race there. So I didn't have that pressure. So I felt that I felt good to have that sort of, you know, stability where I can do what I wanted and not rely on it as my job. It was not my job is it's a hobby, something I like to do. And, um, and I think the other thing too is, um, you know, coming from high school where I made a lot of improvement from, from freshman year of high school to, you know, senior in college. And when I started, you know, my first marathon, I ran my debut, I ran 218. And I thought that was a really bad race. I, I remember, you know, I think texting Gary and Nate, I said, that was horrible. You know, I went out in 66 for 6630 for the first half and came back in like, you know, so much slower than that, like 72 uh, or whatever I was. And I, I think I left, I left a lot on the table. And I've always, every year that comes, um, I'm always, you know, I'll have a workout where I'm like, wow, I, I know that I can run better than this. Like, I know I am better than a 218 guy. So that's always been in the back of my, uh, of my mind. And I've raced you know, I've raced a lot of sub 220 guys or sub 218 guys that I've beaten them before. But as we both know, the marathon is one of those tricky events. Um, there's There are so many variables and you only do one or two per year. So, um, you know, I've tried to just kind of come back knowing and be confident that my best marathon is still ahead of me. And I know that's for some people, you know, it's not an easy thing to, to do. But um, I think knowing that my best marathon is still ahead of me, that has always kept me coming back for these past couple of years. Now, from now on, you know, I know I'm 35, so who knows what's going to happen in the future. But I think I've, I've you know, I've, I've, I have the joy of running, with, which I think a lot of people, you know, they see running as in like, oh, I don't want to do it. But I actually, I love the challenge. You know, I love when I say, I'm going to go on a two hour run and I'm going to do this. And then I get in the middle of that two hour run and I'm feeling just exhausted. I can kind of feel where I'm now, you know, working on all cylinders and you get that feeling, that adrenaline where you're like, are you going to kind of call it a day? You're going to keep going. And I like that challenge Uh, for some people that may be punishment for them, but I generally, I I love to have those type of challenges because I think they, they keep me balanced. Um, they keep me pretty sharp at, at what I do. And running, you can also relate so many things back to whether your work or your life. Um, and I think I've really, uh, I've enjoyed doing that. And I think at age 35, you know, who knows what may happen as far as PRs, but um, I still have the passion for running. I really love that. And I appreciate it because I share a similar perspective to you. I mean, having just turned 40, I've said to people, and, it, and I mean it, like I'm having more fun with this pursuit of running now at 40 than I think I ever have. And it's because one, and this is an important step, I think for a lot of people, not that I don't think I can 
can't still run fast, but I've had to kind of separate myself from who I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago and realize like, I'm, I'm not that same person. There's been a lot that's transpired in that time that can affect how I'm doing what I'm doing right now or my ability to do what I'm doing right now. And really just come at it from a perspective of curiosity to see what's possible, like at this point of my life and to tackle new challenges. And sometimes those new challenges, speaking for me, can be old challenges that I just haven't tackled in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, like racing cross country for the first time in a long time. Earlier this year, I raced on the track for the first time in 16 years, coming back to it after a really big break. And it kind of felt fresh again. And and I'm with you. I think as long as speaking for myself, I can keep finding those challenges, whatever they happen to be, whether it's trying a distance for the first time, trying to run under a certain time, even if it's not a personal best, I'm going to keep doing that because the real benefits aren't whether or not I actually do it. It's everything that I learn about myself along the way, the perspective that it helps me to keep the balance and structure that you know it gives to my life. Because like you've described, I think it makes me a, a, just a better person in general, better partner, um, better coach, um, just a better friend to people as long as I, I have this for me, I call it like an anchor in my life that just kind of like you know keeps me you know keeps me at bay. Yeah, no, it, it makes total sense. And I think for me, Odia, you know, as I look through, you know, what, you know, eventually you have certain things that you do that become part of your identity when you're growing. Mm-hmm. And I think running has definitely become part, I wouldn't say it's, it's my identity, but it's a, it's a slice of my identity. Um, and there are many things that, or things that I do, or um, that people may not may not know that I'm even a runner. So I try not to kind of bring that up to like, if I have a staff meeting, I'm not talking about the marathon. If it happened the, the day before, I may talk about it if they mention it, but I realize everything has its sort of like place in time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, running, uh, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to impact um, a population of Cape Verde, which is very small. So that has been a huge part of me. Um, at my work now, um, you know, I've been able to impact people at my work and, and the lifestyle that I that I have at my at my job. Uh, so that's been that's been a huge part of me and my general my community around me. People who who are going out who we, that we we meet up for runs. You know, they're inspired to to what I do. That you know, I think at times we think, oh, this person is, you know, they they have a full time job. They can't they can't possibly be winning races. You know, and just two weeks ago, I had one of my best races that I've had in my in my career. So um, I think we shouldn't, you know, put limits on what we're able to do and just kind of just go and, and explore and see what's there. Um, but I, I definitely think that um, uh, running is a part of my identity and it has helped me. It continues to help others as well. When did you realize that running for you was more than just a pursuit of your personal goals, but could also be, as you just described, a vehicle to help other people see what's possible for themselves, whether they're your colleagues, people in your community, folks that you're impacting through your foundation, which I want to talk about later in this conversation. Um, but just in, in general, that you you could use this thing that was part of, of your identity that's really helped shape you as a person and show those benefits to other people? I think the first time that happened, I think it was around, I might've been a sophomore or junior in college. Um, I went to Cape Verde for, there's a race there called San Silvestre. 
which is very popular in uh, Portuguese speaking countries. And it tends to be, you know, the sort of like the national championship for road racing. And it's usually done around the end of the year. So um, I went to Cape Verde. I was going to be there around, uh, around the holidays. And I decided to race, uh, to do that race. And I ended up winning that race. And um, later on, I went back to, so the race was in a different island. Cape Verde is an, ar is an archipelago. There are 10 islands. Um, when I went back to my island where I was born, I think everyone from the island, it was amazing the, the sort of like reception that I got when I, when I, when I went back there uh, because it was sort of like a national championship race. And everyone then started just referring me, referring to me as like Ruben the runner who won this race, and and um, I could just feel the energy, like that you know the the island was extremely proud of of what I have done, um, and I could feel that you know other kids who were starting to learn would come up to me naturally, um, you know they just come and talk to me, or coaches wanted to talk to me from the island, and then I said you know what, it's not every time you get you get put in an opportunity to have this platform to impact others. So I wanted to, um, you know, I kept going back to Cape Verde. Uh, now through my foundation, we do a little bit more work there, but there's still a lot that can be done. But I think when you are in a position where, you, you know, I happen to, okay, I want to race. I think it's my responsibility for not, not just for the, you know, for, for the people, but also for the sport to kind of pass down, you know, what I have learned. Because I remember when I was, you know, a teenager or even before I was a teenager, I, re I still remember those few people that I knew were runners. And I would always tell myself, wow, I wish I could one day be like that. And there is some inspiration that you can draw for, from it. And it doesn't have to be, a, you know, I'm going to be a runner for 20 years, but just a little spark of, you know what, let me go try doing this sport. And here in the U.S., we're fortunate that, you know, there are a lot of organized sports. It's just like you don't need the, a, half the work is already done. All you got to do is just basically sign up and pay the fees. In other countries like Cape Verde, there is no organized sport. And that is there's no organized sports in, 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 in most high schools. There are no leagues. Um, you basically end up playing, you know, my street is playing versus your street. And let's grab let's grab everyone else. And let's walk over, let's build our, our goal posts, and let's just play soccer. That's how organized, you know, sports were back in Cape Verde. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot that sports can influence uh, on a deeper level other than just, you know, winning races and losing races. But we're talking about, uh, you know, a country where there's a lot of, there's a lot of poverty at the, at the time, especially when I was there, uh, a lot of drugs. A lot of influence from outside education. You know, no one really, no one really went to school past high school, uh, and just building community, building citizens that are able to thrive, uh, to inspire others. And I think we we're now starting to see how sports can have that that positive influence on the community. And whenever I go there now, I have all these different ties, and I'm trying to to begin to do some of that work as part of my foundation. You were born in Cape Verde. You've returned many a time. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was I was twelve years old. I had just finished uh, seventh grade in Cape Verde. And what was that time like for you as a 
as a preteen, having spent the first decade plus of your life in a place that's all you'd ever known to that point, to completely uproot it and move to a country that couldn't be more different from where you grew up? I think at that age, um, I was probably not mature enough to really understand what what you know migrating from one country to another <laughs> was at the time. I think the the first thing that came to mind was you know obviously the weather is going to be really cold, and then um, I was asking my parents. You know, I grew up basically going to the, being at the beach every single day. Uh, there was no no such thing as you know, going to the beach, we were at the beach. <laughs> so I, I just kept thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to go there. I wonder if they have the beach. Like, I wonder if, if we're going to be able to go to the beach and things like that. So I wasn't really thinking of, you know, a big picture of what things were, but I was very excited to come to the U.S. Um, I think if you ask any, anyone, any, at least from my, my experience, you know, growing up, if you told them you're going to go to the U.S., you think automatically U.S., like the number one country in the world. This is where all opportunities are. And the reason why we came to the U.S., uh, we came for two reasons. One, uh, education. A at the time in Cape Verde, there was no, there was no college um, available. You either had to, be, you had to be the top, one of the very top students in the country to get a uh, government scholarship. And once you got a government scholarship, you had to come back to work for the government in Cape Verde. Or the other option, your parents had to make an insane amount of money to be able to afford to send you to school uh, out of the country. So uh, those were my options. Um, so we came to the U.S. for education so I could learn English and perhaps, you know, get grants or, or, or earn scholarship or find my way to, to pay through college here. And then the other thing that actually is, is pretty interesting, a lot of people actually don't know this, but um, I was born uh, with asthma. Um, I have I had really, really terrible uh, asthma where when I was young, I, I was in and out of hospitals all the time. And I was often referred to, you know, uh, back home as the kid who was in the hospital all the time. That's what they referred to me because my asthma was very, very bad. So we knew that I, I needed to get out to just get treatment uh, for my asthma. What are your earliest memories of sport? Uh, my earliest memory of sport, I, I want to say, um, you know, in Cape Verde, definitely soccer. I remember just watching soccer games on TV, you know, following the, the Portuguese Premier League really, really closely. Um, for me, that was like, that was also another thing that I had to kind of not, not give up, but I couldn't follow as close when I was here in the U.S. You know, uh, my team was Benfica, and whenever we had a Benfica game, we were glued to the television. And the players for us, they were considered like gods. And every once in a while, when one of them came, came to Cape Verde for vacation, you know, we would run after them for small little autographs. So... For me, soccer was like the sport of the world. I never even looked for running. That was not even in my agenda uh, when I was living in Cape Verde. Did you have family here in the U.S. when you came? So I'm, I'm thinking back to a um, conversation I had a couple months ago with Sid Baptista, who also grew up in Dorchester, where you grew up after you moved here to the U.S. He's also Cape Verdean. And I know there's a, a community there. So I'm, I'm interested in 
learning if you know you had family here to settle with when you came yeah so my um i had a i had a couple of aunts and uncles here and my grandfather was actually here and interesting enough um i think we lived in the very same neighborhood as sid at the time uh in roxbury so we lived closely uh, to each other so we settled in in roxbury when we came to the u.s what are your first memories of the U.S. when you came here? You you had said how you were wondering if there was going to be a beach that you could go to. You knew the weather was going to be a bit colder. But once you, you got on the ground and kind of got your bearings a bit, what were your initial impressions? My initial thoughts were, you know, obviously in Cape Verde, um, I lived in a very small fishing town where there was five streets, no 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 traffic lights. We could just be at the, on outside on the street. Like, no one stayed inside the house. We were all on the street. And I think moving to Roxbury at the time, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, pretty pretty um, high crime area, actually, in Roxbury. Um, I was, I, I remember, you know, just being shocked that we couldn't just, you know, be outside uh, doing things that we wanted to do. Plus, it was a very, you know, Roxbury is very, it's part of Boston, but it's very big um, compared to to where I was coming from. So just not having um, the ability to go go do something that I wanted to do. Every, everywhere you wanted to go, you needed to get in, get in a car, which almost really never happened back home. So that was kind of strange, adjusting to like being in a car all the time. Um, the only time we were really in a car was when we went from one part of the, like one town another town in the island but in the same town you never got in a car so just being kind of like uh, my earliest experience was just feeling a little bit like i was isolated like i couldn't do a lot of the things that i did back home was it hard to make friends uh yes um i actually yes and no uh i attended the dearborn middle school and it was very easy to make friends within the English as a second language program that I was in. So thankfully, uh, the Boston Public Schools, they had a, uh, a bilingual program for Cape Verdean students. And I was able to make a lot of friends, um, you know, Cape Verdean friends there, but um, U.S. born or, you know, American friends, like mainstream classes, uh, it was very hard. Um, so because there's a lot of stereotypes that uh, that often you know kind of went on uh, during the time when I was in in school, especially those first you know those first months months or two when you're just fresh in, you know in the country. So um, there are a lot of stereotypes. So I didn't really have many friends at school, and I think back you know back on on the street where we lived, it was very very hard to make friends because uh, you know first off we didn't really go outside as much because we were, uh, we were afraid of crimes. Um, and, uh, it's at the time you, I, I think, and I still think it to this day that, um, it was, um, definitely, uh, you know, being in a place where, you know, Dorchester, Roxbury, where there was a lot of crime at the time, it prevented me from really kind of exploring a lot of places that, that, that I would have liked to explore because believe it or not, you know, those areas have rich culture, uh, they, there's just so much in those areas. Uh, but I think the crime side of things kind of limited uh, my ability to, to see those other places. Did you feel a lot of pressure as a young kid when you moved here 
to do well academically, knowing that that was one of the main reasons for you to come to this country was to have that opportunity. So when you started school, English as a second language, did you feel like you needed to really like not screw it up, you know, not, not lose the opportunity that was given to you? Yeah, I think to some extent, a lot of immigrants uh, tend to feel that way. Um, there is, uh, you know, the, there is, there's high standard um, that you're sort of like expected because your, your family, you know, and they made a decision to come to a country more based on you, not really on them. Uh, you know, my, my dad was, I think it was 39 and my mom was like 37. And they both, you know, we lived in Cape Verde. We weren't, you know, rich, but we weren't poor either. You know, we we're middle class, but they knew that in order to provide a better future for us, they, they had to go somewhere else because they were not going to be able to afford, you know, college and all those things there. So um, there was, I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of pressure, but I think the pressure I put on myself uh, more than anything, because I felt like I didn't want to let my parents down. You know, I didn't want to let them down for coming all this way, for leaving most of their families and just have a life where, oh, so why, you know, why did you come here? I wanted to kind of have something and say, hey, we came here, we got this done, and it's been a better life. When did running come into the picture for you? You mentioned running in high school at John D. O'Brien, your 1009 two-miler, I think like 433, 434 miler, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So like solid, but not spectacular. And you improved a lot during your time there. But what was your first exposure to distance running or track and field? So I, my, the first, I, when I, when I think about running, the first time I actually like ran, I think was for gym class in Cape Verde. Uh, you know, we were taking volleyball and we would do slow jogs and I knew I couldn't really last long because I had, a, had asthma. Uh, but I found it to be, oh, that that's fun, but that's not something that I would do on my own. But when I was in the U.S., uh, the uh, Boston Athletic Association, they had a program uh, where they would bring some of their athletes to do community engagement work with the Boston Public Schools. So during lunchtime, uh, some of the Boston Athletic Association uh, staff and, you know, members of their team, they would come and they, they, they would do a, a couple of laps with us around the Dearborn Middle School. I was in seventh or eighth grade. And then they would stretch. We'd talk about running. And then that was it. And then you went, you know, you went back to your class. And then um, one time, one time, uh, my I still remember I was in Mrs. O'Neill's class and uh, one of my other teachers walked into the class and he was sort of like the phys ed, not a phys ed teacher, but he was involved in a lot of the sports for the middle school. Um, and uh, he asked, hey, you know, we're we're having we're having cross country, uh, you know, who wants to participate? And I raised my hand right away because I said cross country, cross country, we are running cross country. Like, we are running across the country? This sounds cool. I've just been in the U.S. for like a couple of months, and I get to travel across the country. So I didn't quite understand what he meant by cross-country. I had no idea that there was anything called cross-country as a sport. So I signed up, and, um, you know, and we, later I found out that 
you know, there was a bus to pick us up to bring us to Franklin Park. <laughs> so uh, that was the middle school cross-country championships for the city of Boston. Um, so I ran that, and that was my first experience. Wow, this is what they mean by cross-country. They just have you run around the park. Were you hooked right away? Um, no, not really, to be honest with you. It was fun to do it because I think I actually did pretty well because that was the first time that I was actually running without asthma. Uh, my asthma was sort of like going away because there's less dust in the U.S. But I was definitely not hooked to it. You know, my sport was soccer. And uh, later that year, we had a great we had a great soccer team at the Dearborn Middle School because uh, most of the soccer players were pretty much all from the English as a second language program. They were all Cape Verdeans. So we had a 100% Cape Verdean soccer team, and we won the the Boston Middle School Championships. And th so that was my sport. It was never a soccer. It was never track and field or running. But once I got into high school, you know, I was on a, on the soccer team there at the O'Brien, and one of the uh, one of our uh, defensemen, uh, Carl. Um, he started to influence me to try out for indoor track. So I said, you know what, Carl, I'll do indoor track with you because he, he was doing indoor track. So I did it with him and I ended up running, I would say relatively well for our school, but not good enough at, when you're looking at state level. I think my, I think I ran a three, I don't know, three ten or 259, 1000 meters. And that later that, after my freshman year, I had run 5.12 in the mile, which was 5.12 in the mile was one of the best times for my league, period. Um, and then, you know, that was kind of like, and he was he was saying, wow, Ruben, you did really good. You were like one of the best in our leagues. I said, oh, okay, cool. And, um, and then I started to really learn about, wow, there's actually, there's a lot of tradition here um, that I didn't know existed in the Boston Public Schools for running. Living in like Roxbury, Dorchester area, just just as a as a kid, and like you said, you weren't spending nearly as much time outside as you did back in Cape Verde. But did you ever see people just out running and notice them in the neighborhood putting in miles? Because as I talked about with Sid, certainly during that time, like early two thousands it's not what that area was known for. And quite honestly, probably wasn't a very safe thing to do. No, I, I never really saw people running. Um, when even, I mean, I think even when we went to track practice, we would do a sh very short, you know, two miles out, two miles back type of deal of running. And we would be the only people running. So even though I knew about, Eventually, I sort of knew about the Boston Marathon, but I didn't really associate running with Boston. Um, for me, it was like, oh, Boston Marathon is something that happens like, I don't know, somewhere else. We, we don't really get to see it, but it's on TV and we have no school. So that's cool. Uh, so uh, I never really saw people running. When you were in high school, you joined the indoor track team. When in high school did you make the switch fully over to running and decide that you weren't going to play soccer anymore? Or did you play soccer through high school and just ran track? I don't think that I know exactly what the mix was for you. So for me, um, I did soccer my first two years. 
and then going into my junior year, um, I decided to do cross country. And then I uh, ran cross country also my senior year. I was named the uh, captain of the men's soccer team going into my junior year, but it was a last minute thing. I told coach, Hey, I'm not, I'm not coming back for soccer. <laughs> and why didn't you? I didn't because, uh, you know, at the time, you know, soccer, for those um, who don't know me, soccer has been a huge part of my life. Uh, and in Cape Verde tradition culture, soccer is the number one sport. You grow up basically three years old playing soccer. So, uh, you know, after talking to my, my, my high school track, uh, track coach, you know, he was telling me, he said, Ruben, you know, you're right now you're the number one runner we have uh, in the city of Boston for high school, which wasn't was nothing out of this world because our distance program in the city, uh, in the league at the time when I was running uh, was not what um, it was not compared to other other places. But then I started to really learn about some of the uh, some of the runners that had come be uh, before me that eventually had sort of like made the switch to full-time running cross-country, indoor track, and outdoor track, and uh, and learning about their success, and actually learning, wow, that these runners were in the Boston Public Schools. This is how they made it. Um, and I got connected with uh, with Tony DeRocha. I don't know if you know Tony, mm -hmm. but Tony Coach Ab Ab um, Abdi, who was a two-time uh, footlocker champion in cross-country. And at the time, there was only, I, I think only two people had done it at, at the time. He did it first, and then Ritz, uh, I think, won twice. So I started to learn about him. And uh, also around that time, um, Saeed Ahmed, who had run at English High School, uh, he went to Arkansas, and he was back from, you know, he was back in the summertime, so I got to meet him. So I got to really learn about, you know, what's actually possible. And uh, Tony and I... Uh, Tony was actually the first person that I, I would see actually running. And Tony was coaching at Emmanuel High School. And, um, you know, and we would, we would, and he was a teacher at Boston Public. And we would talk about running and he would tell me these stories of all these different runners. And after talking to my high school coach, you know, he said, if you really want to take running to the next level, you know, you want to break your PRs, uh, especially for the mile, because he knew that I had pretty good, um, speed i guess uh, but he said if you really want to do uh, you know lower a lot of your prs you've got to take running full time you know just running four or five days a week taking weekends off and then not running at all in the summertime not running in the fall it's just not it's not really helping you and i could i could feel that because a lot of the uh, a lot of the other competitors i was going up against you know they were all doing cross country so I, um, it was a really, really hard decision. I think when I told some people that I was doing cross country, no one could really, first off, no one really knew what cross country was, <laughs> which didn't even make sense to me. And then second of all, um, it's really strange that, you know, at the time, Boston Public Schools didn't even have a cross country league. There was no league and there was no team from O'Brien either. So I quit soccer and I'm doing great at the time, I was one of the. I was number three in scoring my sophomore year for the city of Boston. I scored fourteen goals in fourteen games, uh, and now I quit to a sport that nobody even knows about. We don't have a league. We haven't had a league for years. We don't have a high school team. We haven't had a high school team for years. And I asked. I said. I, I talked to my high school coach. I said, "Hey, 
if I'm gonna do this, you know, you gotta you gotta help me out. So he talked to the uh, the Boston Public School athletic director Ken Still at the time. Uh, Mr. Still was able to say, hey, you know, we'll we'll pay for you to go to some of the meets, and if you need a bus, uh, we'll get you on a bus with with a couple of other kids. I think we had that year maybe three kids on on the entire league, not 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 the high school, the entire league, which has like sixteen schools. So that's how much running there is in Boston Public School. You have three kids total from about 16 high schools combined. So, you know, we uh, we actually had a coach, uh, Ben Wesenyele, who volunteered to coaches. And he was a really good runner back uh, in, in his days at the O'Brien. He ran 920 the mile. He's from Ethiopia. He had really good experience training with Saeed and, and all those other guys before him. And he coached us, and that first year, uh, unfortunately, uh, to add more, uh, I got injured. Uh, so by the end of that season, I basically didn't even – I don't even think I, I really fully finished the season. I may have had maybe two races. And then going back, you know, after the season was over, you know, just kind of – I just remember, you know, going back to school and people saying, oh, you, you know, you didn't do soccer – which you were great at, and you did this foreign sport called cross country, and you didn't do anything. You just have nothing to show for it. I think I might have run like 18 minutes in one of my races, and that was it. There was no states, nothing. And on top of that, now I was in, I was injured. I was I was having some knee issues that really prevented me from running. So that was my first year of cross country. Has it changed in the Boston Public Schools? Do they have a league now? Were you able to serve as kind of a catalyst for just being able to to grow that program and to make cross country more accessible to inner city kids at the high school level i think it hasn't quite happened yet i think there's definitely um there's a lot more running that's going on now uh with uh with a coach uh who i'd like to give a huge shout out to coach hatim who's uh called coach h as they refer to him sometimes He's been able to bring a lot of the Boston Public School now to have a unified team. And there's definitely a lot of potential, and they're doing a lot more than we were doing at the time. I mean, even the participation numbers are up higher. You know, after I graduated, um, you know, the, 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 the Boston Public School struggled. You know, we had, uh, we had Abdi, uh, who did really good, went to uh, do good things in college, um, but I think in uh, Omar too, you know, Abdi went to Providence, Omar went to Arkansas, Omar ended up running, you know, four O's in the mile. Uh, but I think overall, we've really struggled to attract uh, the, you know, the participants to take, to, to take cross country more seriously. Uh, and there's, there, I mean, there are a lot of different uh, variables and a lot of reasons that I can't fully, um, you know, understand, uh, but I think to some level, you know, I, I helped out a little bit. I think there's more running going on now. Um, I remember going into my my senior year, you know, after I basically had done nothing my junior year, I, uh, I had been training for a couple of weeks in the summertime. Uh, I wasn't sure whether or not, you know, uh, our athletic director, Mr. Steele, was going to give us the same deal as he gave us last year as far as providing transportation or uniforms and registration. I knocked on, I remember this to this day when I, I went upstairs to his office at White Stadium 
and I knocked and I had no idea whether or not he was going to open the door. He opened the door. I introduced myself. I said, I'm Ruben. I'm, I'm from the O'Brien school. I really want to run cross country. You know, could you kind of help us out with transportation to meet? And I, I told him, you know, I, I sort of knew what kind of shape I was because he was getting towards like August. I said, if you give me that chance, I guarantee you I will win the Division II cross-country championships right here at Franklin Park. That's basically what I told him. It was kind of like a bold move, but I said, hey, this is, you know, I, I got to go for it. And I knew, you know, who was coming back, who was not, and I knew what kind of shape that I was in. I had actually done, I had done the Cigna 5K in New Hampshire, and I had run a really, I had run over a two minute PR there. So I was like, I know that even if I don't win the class B, I'm going to be up there top five or top 10. So, um, you know, we didn't have any meets. Uh, we basically had, um, uh, some, some meets where if we saw that a team was coming over to Franklin park on a particular day, we would ask their coaches, Hey, can, can I kind of get in just to get in a little taste of what it feels like to run in a dual meet? So I remember running against, you know, Boston College, Xavarian High School uh, when they came to Franklin Park. And other times we just did time trials. You know, my first time trial was, you know, the second week of September and it would just be just me. We had, I think, by the time I think it was just two or three of us still running cross country for the city of Boston. And eventually, you know, by the end of the season, to make long story short, I won the Division Two. A championship and it was in the front page of the boston globe sports and the next day i brought it to, <laughs> to mr Steele's office to show him that i kept my promise what was his response uh he was just he was just so happy you know and i could it was a it's definitely one of those moments in my in my running career that i'll forever remember because that was an opportunity where he didn't have to give me a chance uh there was absolutely no reason for him to give me a chance because we did nothing the previous year. But uh, the way that I had talked to him, I said, look, man, I just need one chance. Just give me one shot. Bring me to a couple of meets. So they paid for me to go to Brown Invitational where I ran under 16 minutes for the 5K. And I think, you know, if I, if I hadn't had that chance, I don't think my track times would have, would have allowed me to wanting to even starting to get recruited by college. Um, by college coaches, because my 432 in the mile was nothing special. But having run under 16 minutes definitely meant a little bit better that I had some type of potential. So that um, helped me tremendously. Even I, even by the for the fact that I was being recruited to run in college, it gave me confidence that some of these coaches they believed that I could do something, and that's all I needed. Because uh, a lot of the times, you know, you question yourself whether or not you can do something. But when a coach tells you that you can do something, then it has a stronger meaning. Yeah, it's, it's powerful. I want to get into the college recruiting process with you here in a minute. But before we go there, let's just talk about creating opportunity for inner city kids to run cross country. I don't have the information in front of me, but I imagine the situation that you found yourself in when you were at O'Brien and that still largely exists in Boston public schools today is not uncommon in other big cities across the country where there just isn't a cross country program. That opportunity isn't there. Maybe someone such as yourself can get a one-off opportunity and, you know, not only realize their potential as an athlete, but as we've talked about throughout this conversation, just all the other lessons that, that running 
can teach you. How impactful do you think it would be if those opportunities could be created in the Boston public schools, in other inner cities, just to make cross country an option for kids? I mean, relative to some other sports, the barrier of entry is pretty low in terms of the actual you know, cost. But if you can get those kids in the door and expose them to good coaches who help them see what's possible, if they can learn the lessons of discipline, time management, work ethic, I mean, all of those things that, you know, we've learned as, as runners and have applied to other areas of our life. Like, like, let's just do a little thought experiment. What impact do you think, you know, that, that could make? Uh, you know, I've thought about this for a while. And um, I, I think if you were, you know, first off, I, I'd say in the city of Boston, you have some of the most talented kids in the state of Massachusetts. There's just a lot of them. It's just untapped talent. Um, they're, they're just there. And, uh, you know, running, I, I think it's hard to, you know, I think it's hard to get some kids to, to do running if they don't see it around them, period. You know, the Boston Marathon, for me, it was foreign. I never went to Boston Marathon. Uh, I never knew what it was. Um, I didn't go to races. I didn't see people running around me. I didn't see people my color running around me. I didn't see people in the Cape Verde community running. I saw them playing soccer, so I played soccer too. And I also think, you know, I didn't see any running shops uh, near me. I think one time when my coach, we had to get running shoes, we had to go to Copley. And it was so far from me. You know, I went to the store called Marathon Sports. It was the first time I run there. And my coach said, this is where you come to get shoes. And we had to drive there to go there. So there's a lot of things that I think we need to, we need to create more inclusion in running within to, to sort of like bridge some type of a gap. Uh, because there's something missing between, you know, like when people talk about, oh, Boston is like the running city. Uh, and I say to myself, no, not really, you know, because... That most of the population that lives in Boston, they are they are in places like Dorchester, Roxbury, and there's almost nobody running there. Uh, but yes, if you go to Charles River, you may see a lot of runners there. But to us, if you live in Roxbury, Dorchester, you you're never going to go to those places because everything that you have is near you. So that was kind of like a big difference. And I think when you're in high school, generally you're you're being influenced by. You know, like if you look, if you watch TV, you know, you're not going to see really any stories on TV about about running. Every once in a while, you might see something like someone, you know, who won the Boston Marathon. But in general, you're not going to get that exposure. So when you go to high school, uh, even in elementary school, when you don't have that sort of like that foundation for running early on, it's just you're just never going to like it. You see it always as like, oh, this is our sport. The, the sport of running is like a warm-up. Oh, that's what you do for other sports. You use it for warming up for basketball or for football. And there's just really, I think, there's not that exposure. And uh, I think we need to have more companies sort of like if they really want you know, to bridge the gap, to really get more involved in communities of color. Yeah. Uh, they need to have shops. They need to have specific brands um, that are attract attracting, uh, you know, runners of, of color, um, you know, doing more things. Um, I, I don't like doing more events inside those particular areas in Roxbury, Mattapan, Hyde Park, Dorchester, and not keeping all of the running events like in 
other places where we don't see it. Uh, so I think there's a lot that we can we can learn, and I think there's a lot of talent in the Boston Public Schools. Unfortunately, a lot of a lot of the, the you know the students end up just being on the sideline. You know, I tried out for basketball. I didn't make basketball, so I did track. So, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you can't be what you can't see, and I think it starts at that youth level. I mean, in the inner city, let's just take Boston as, as an example where where you grow up. I mean, you didn't even know what cross country was. You know, you're not exposed to it as a, a young kid. So if more kids can get exposed to it when they're younger, there's a higher likelihood that it's something that could remain a part of their life for years to come. And I think back to my conversation again with Sid Baptista, who grew up where you did starting the Pioneers run crew, which is is not a youth program. I mean, welcomes anyone, but mostly adults and people of color who grew up in those communities and making that something that people see, you know, when they're in Dorchester, they see a group of people running by and they're like, well, what's that? You know, could I be, you know, could I be a part of, they see themselves like, you know, in that. And I think, I think more of that needs to happen certainly around the country. But to your point, I think more brands need to get involved at that level. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I think back to another conversation I had for the podcast with Belota Asmaram, uh, who lives over in Oakland, East Bay here in California. And he and Victor Diaz opened up a shop right in downtown Oakland, you know, very like urban community, um, people of color. And he talks about the brands that they've brought into the store. And he, he wants people in that community to see, you know, see themselves, see that as a place where, you know, they can go and they feel normal. They feel <laughs> accepted and they feel like, Hey, this is something that's, you know, that's for me. And, and I think it's just to highlight the point that that, that doesn't exist widespread. Um, and I think your example about Boston as a proud, you know, Massachusetts native is, is actually it's on the money. I mean, yeah, people know Boston as a running city and it's like, sure, you go down to Storrow Drive, you run along the trails. I mean, you'll see people running, but if you go into the most densely populated areas of the city, you're not going to see nearly as many people running. The Boston Marathon doesn't run through those areas, but it's like, that's where the focus and the energy and the attention needs to go. I mean, to, to truly make it accessible and to truly make a place like Boston, you know, a running city. I think also um, there is some work that needs to be done uh, when you're talking about urban uh, development, you know, policies and, and systems and places that you have to create an environment where people feel like, okay, I can go running here because there's a running path here. You know, in areas of Roxbury, I don't know if you've, when you, a lot of places in Roxbury and Dorchester, you barely even have a, a spot to put your car. Yeah. Forget about trying to run on the street there because you're going to get run over. Um, but I also think one thing that's really important that, you know, my, one of my mentors, uh, Tony DeRocha was all, would always tell me is you have to always keep running fun. And there are people who don't really have that connection with city kids and city kids, you know, if something is not fun, we're, we're going to, we're going to just step away from it right away. If you're telling me, Oh, here's practice today, go do four laps. I'm just going to quit because for me, that, that doesn't sound fun. But when you make it like, Hey, this is competitive thing. Let me challenge you. Hey, did you know you could do this? You know, let's bring parachutes to practice. Like Tony used to have parachutes. We used to have, um, you know, we would do these like summer clinics where we had parachutes, we had little hurdles, we would do sprints, we would do everything else, push-up competition. So it was a lot of fun. Um, at the same time, you know, it was it was in places that was, 
you know, that people knew about, people could go there, that there wasn't really a big issue with parking, that we knew we could take the public transportation to get there. So we have to think about all these things when we're talking about bringing running to a specific um, area. And with Boston, you know, you have a lot of high schools there, and most of those high schools are not in areas that you're able to run. You know, when when I was at the O'Brien, we were lucky enough, we were right next to the, you know, the Reggie Lewis track, we got to use the track, and we would run on, on the south... Um, South uh, South Southwest Carter Park up and down from Ruggles Station to Forest Hills. So that was nice. We had that. But I know in other schools, they, they probably didn't really have that. So we have to look at the entire system when we're trying to make running more fun and more accessible uh, for the city. And um, I think, uh, and going back to my first point, I think there's a tremendous amount of untapped talent in Boston. What was the recruiting process like for you? at O'Brien. I mean, we went after you fairly hard at Stonehill. You ended up going to our conference rival at the time, UMass Lowell. Had a great career there. Now have your actual career there. So it was it was clearly the right move for you. But as you mentioned earlier, you weren't super fast on the track, but you were a much better cross-country runner in comparison. And that definitely brought some attention your way. Were you surprised when coaches started to show interest in having you come run at their school? I, I think I, I had some coaches that, you know, showed some interest um, that I would get from, you know, random programs. Um, I think there, there was a, there was, I wanted to stay in school in Boston because, you know, that's where my community was, the Cape Verde community. And we had only been in the U.S. for a couple of years, and I didn't really want to go too far away from my parents. I had reached out to a couple of the I, I won't name any names, but some of the Boston schools and and um, you know for my 800 at the time, my fastest was one one fifty nine, and uh, my fastest mile was four thirty two. And they said, you know, if you want to if you want to get on our be part of our team, you have to run at least of you know one fifty three eight hundred to even have a chance to earn a scholarship. Um, and I, I actually went to a couple of, of those schools right there in Boston and literally marched into their track office and say, I want to talk to your coach because that's how bad I wanted to go to school in Boston. And I just pretty much got rejected. Um, but I had received some letters. Um, the one, one, I, I would say the one person that definitely recruited me the, uh, the most, uh, was Stonehill college, uh, Karen Bowen. And, um, I think she saw something in me that a lot of coaches didn't see. Uh, and I think being from the city, knowing what, you know, the level of competition that I, that I had, uh, the amount of running experience I had and the amount of running during the week that I was doing, she knew something that probably even I didn't know at the time. Um, and I, I was, I kept asking myself, you know, I, wh why she still wants me to go there. She must know something like, so I actually felt like, you know, when she was recruiting me, I felt special that, hey, this person has a lot of confidence in me. So then I, I started to look at myself and say, hey, if this person really thinks that, if Karen really thinks I can run in college, then maybe I really can run in college. Uh, so I did a couple of trips and um, I felt especially more connected with the, uh, uh, the atmosphere at Lowell because there was also a lot more people that just, just, looked a little bit more like me right. and mm -hmm. uh, we're coming from different towns like Lawrence, Lowell, you know, uh, in places like that where 
I felt like it was a good place for me to go. And on top of that, it was a state school. And I think, you know, with the transportation very easily accessible from from Boston to uh, to Lowell via, you know, the, the commuter rail, it made my decision uh, easier. And I think, you know, I remember when, when I was being recruited by Gary and uh, he actually, at the time I had run a thousand meters in 230, 234 and in 233, he said, if you come to Lowell, uh, you will run 229 your first year. And uh, it happened. I ran 229, 228 actually my first year there, the thousand. So then after that, I said, you know what? I just got to follow the plan. And uh, so that was my, my experience. What was that transition like from high school to college, leaving the city and going to Lowell, which is not that far away, but it's not Boston. It's, uh, it's, it's very different being away from your family for the first time. So personally, athletically, socially, what was that like for you? Uh, socially, it was great because then I was able to I was able to meet a lot more people from outside, uh, outside of that Boston bubble and learn different experiences. For me, it was the first time that, I mean, even my high school in Boston was very diverse. So I had people from all over, but coming to Lowell, I got to learn a lot about, you know, like I had a, a teammate from Maine, another teammate from New Hampshire, people that I've never really interacted with. So it was kind of cool to get to know like, hey, what is it like up there in like in Maine? You know, what do you do up there? Uh, so that was cool. Um, as uh, training wise, um, I actually felt that it was a lot more fun because when I was in Boston, uh, you know, as I got a little bit better towards my senior year, I do a lot of runs alone. Here I had, you know, maybe 15 guys to run with all the time. And the workouts, you know, they felt easier because I was able to have so many more people to pace with. So I just basically would follow the people that I was, you know, pacing with. And I felt like there was a complete support system here where I think the coaches definitely paid a lot of attention to me and they took, took good care of me for what was possible at the time here in Lowell. Um, and we just kind of just kept plugging away and seeing what, what happened and ended up having a, a, pretty, a pretty good first year. Talk to me a bit about your relationship with Coach Gary Gardner. He recruited you to UMass Lowell, told you you could run 229 there as a freshman. He guided your career through college and then post-collegiately for a while, went with you to the London Olympics. Like, What was that relationship like initially, and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah, so um, I think Gary gave me uh, a lot of confidence in my running. Before I looked at any school, uh, you know, when I was looking to see whether or not I would go there, you know, I would always look at who was there and what they did before they got there and how they were able to transform into the runners that they were at the time. So I looked at, you know, where, you know, who Gary was coaching. You know, he was coaching guys like Patrick Morassi and, uh, and Chris Kapfer, uh, Nate, and these were runners who weren't necessarily as talented as me uh, when I was in high school, but then I saw what they did and I, I totally was, you know, I, I bought into the system. I said, you know, what, I'm going to do what they did. So Gary was able to, I think for me, if, if you were to ask him what was the biggest challenge in coaching me, he would probably tell you that uh, just being able to, to help me, uh, 
to, for me to believe in myself and what I could do, because there was a lot of times when I didn't really have that full confidence. And it, it actually took me, you know, it took me probably until like my senior year where he was actually able to, after a couple of things have had happened with my running to actually being able to sort of like gain the confidence. And, um, you know, Gary is someone who is, um, he's friends with, with, with his athletes. He deeply, deeply cares about, you know, their lives and he's helped me tremendously, not just as a coach, but also in guiding me in, in, as I mentioned earlier, in making those really tough decisions. And, uh, we, we, we don't talk as much as we used to, but we still keep in touch, um, you know, maybe on a couple times and stuff, but, um, I, he's always been there for me, uh, whenever I've need anything. So he's a good friend of mine and he obviously was, you know, him and I were able to experience some really great, uh, times together from, you know, from him recruiting me in college to come to college, to come to Lowell, to, uh, me then, you know, becoming an all American, being on the hall of fame at UMass Lowell, going to the Olympics. He went to the world championship with me, which was right before the Olympics. And, uh, you know, I knew, you know, just his, both of his kids at the time, um, you know, his youngest kid, um, was born on the same day that actually was our first day of cross country camp freshman year. So he was able to kind of, you know, go through that experience and, you know, his whole family is, is all, uh, has been very supportive of, of his coaching. And I think it's been a really special, uh, time that, you know, we've, we've spent together as friends. One thing that we share in common, sadly, is that we've both lost our moms. And your mom passed while you were in college. What was that experience like for you? Um, you know, it, at first, it was kind of like, because my, my mom had been fighting cancer, I think, since my, since my freshman year. So, and she had, you know, she was doing good, doing a lot of the, you know, the chemotherapy and all that stuff. But we always thought like, okay, she's going to, she's going to be cancer. And then my senior year, you know, it was getting really, really bad where, you know, when I was, you know, trying to like finish school, like wrapping up senior year, especially the, the last semester and getting phone calls from my dad. Hey, you know, your mom's not doing good. So, you know, we'd have to sometimes go home, um, so we, uh, you know, I always thought like, okay, she's, she's, she's going to make it through. It's impossible. No, no, it, like, it can't happen to her. Like cancer cannot take her away. And then when it did happen, you know, it was just like, it was a really, really tough experience for all of us to have to go through. Especially, I think, especially for me, because, you know, I was going to be at the time, the first, you know, her first child to graduate college mm -hmm. and, you know, having done a lot of the work coming from Cape Verde, you know, t uh, many years later, 10 years later or whatever to put me through college to, you know, pay for my tuition to do all the sacrifices for me. And then for her not to be there when I graduated college, you know, that was, was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty sad moment, uh, for me and our entire family. But, um, I think it gave me a lot of, uh, different perspective on just how I see things in life. And I definitely think it made me stronger to, to kind of, you know, appreciate, uh, the people in my life and the relationships that I have with people. And, um, and also the relationship that I have with running, uh, because even when she was, you know, even when she was very sick and we would 
be by her bedside, um, you know, she would tell me, hey, go for your run. Uh, I'll be here. So she wanted me to pursue what I wanted to pursue, which whatever, you know, whatever happened. And I remember when she passed away, we actually had the New England championships coming up in February. And, uh, you know, Gary told me, hey, you know, I, I, you don't have to, don't feel like you have to run for the team. Um, but I wanted to come out and run because my mom had mentioned to me, she said, you go and you do your running. Like your life can still go on. You can still do things that you want to do. So that was kind of her message. So I remember, I think she passed away on a Tuesday and uh, we might have had a really light workout at the Reggie Lewis. I was staying at home. So I went over to the Reggie and saw the team and, and Gary and um, we had done a pre-light workout and uh, Friday, I um, we raised the DMR, which I, I anchored the winning DMR team that Friday. And that Saturday, I was racing the 3K, and I also won the 3K. I think that might have been the first time that I won a New England championship. So, um, but uh, you know, I think losing her definitely put different perspective on how we see life and things that we think that are like, oh, this can't happen. This I w- I wouldn't know what to do after. But it allowed me to kind of find strength within me, within me that I didn't know existed. I appreciate sharing that, man. It's really powerful. It's really beautiful. It resonates with me. Um, I feel very similarly. I mean, circumstances were different. My mom passed very suddenly. Um, certainly one of the the hardest, most tragic moments of my life. But now with time and some perspective, I can see that silver lining as well, you know, and, and just that appreciation that I have for the people in my life, how I value my time presence. Um, you know, just, you know, just cause our time is finite here. And, you know, as much as we think, you know, the good times are going to last forever. The, the truth is they don't. Um, but it's, it's an important reminder to really just be present in whatever it is that you're doing and to appreciate and show appreciation for the people, you know, that are in your life. And then, you know, for you and, and also for me, um, you know, using, you know, running is one way to, to honor, you know, the, those people um, because they realized right. how important of a part of us it is. Yes, no, I definitely agree. And I, I think like I said, going through that experience, uh, it definitely made me stronger, made me realize like, you know, certain things are not, not always going to be perfect, but if you got it, you, if you have a passion, you know, you should try to follow your passion and do, you know, what you can, because that's, that's what makes you happy. And for my mom, she, she wanted me to do what made me happy. And she knew that running sort of made me happy. And it was, uh, it was a way that I think that I, I still honor her by, by running. And there are moments that, you know, even when I was racing that I would think to myself, oh, you know, I'm, I'm hurting really bad. And then I would have these like, almost like flashbacks mm-hmm. and thinking of my mother fighting cancer and saying, no, this is not hurt. That was what hurt was fighting a battle like cancer. So it definitely puts a different perspective in things that you you're doing in your daily lives, like even the amount of struggles or pains that you may be going through, but there's always someone who could be going through something way worse than you. A couple more things in the short amount of time that we have left here. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your Olympic experience in London in 2012. I remember uh, just sitting there with you in the Olympic Village at one point in Gary and being like, man, there's like three of us here from 
you know, at the time D2 Northeast 10 conference at the Olympic games in London. Like this is, this is kind of crazy. Um, and you were, I think one of three or four athletes yes. from Cape mm-hmm. Verde to be, you know, in those games, like what was the the process like for you? I know a little bit about just how, how long it can be um, from a credentialing standpoint and getting in the door uh, from my experience, but what was it like for you representing a small country where there isn't an Olympic trials? You don't have a big team that is, you know, representing the, the country that you're from like when did those conversations start and when did it become a reality that you were going to get to go and compete it actually happened pretty quick uh because at the time cape, you know cape verde didn't have anyone with a qualification time for the standard and um with no qualification time at the time there was a uh, they referred to it as a term called the wild card mm-hmm. so you could as a country you could send your best uh, athletics uh, athlete uh, anywhere from a hundred to shot puts to distance, whatever. And I happened to be, you know, uh, chosen as I was the best athlete. So I was able to get an entry into the Olympic games. And from there, it was, it was kind of really weird because I, I, you know, I was working full time. It was my first year working. And I said to myself, I don't even know if I have vacation time to go away. <laughs> so I had to, I think I actually had to use some vacation and then i think for the remaining of the second week i may have gone uh like unpaid i I can't even remember but i know i didn't have all the vacation time so it happened fairly quick and i got an email they said we're going we're sending you all the stuff you know hopped on the plane Uh, i honestly i wasn't even really fully prepared for anything so it's not like i could tell my family hey come and watch me and but it happened so so fast um my my the one thing that I was I was pretty happy with uh, was that they allowed me to bring um, Gary with me as a coach because uh, it was around the same time when he was still coaching me, so it was really cool to have him there. You know, he was at the World Championships with me in 2011, uh, and then at the Olympics in 2012. And you know, we've been together. We had been together for a long time since he recruited me in 2005. So it was kind of like you know, I felt. For me, as happy as as much as I was happy for being there, I was also happy for him being there as well. Um, because at that, that one point in his career, I know that you know he's a tremendous coach. He's coached many different athletes from you know average Joe's to to running you know sub fourteen minutes, and uh, it was special to have him there, have him go through because this is what he actually does for a living. You know, I don't do that for a living, but that's what he does for a living. And it was cool to have him there and have him experience that. Yeah, it was, it was something else. I remember taking the bus over from the village to the stadium, the morning of your prelim and sitting in, you know, the area that we got to sit in as credentialed athletes and coaches being like, Holy shit, Ruben's running in the Olympic games on the track in the 5,000 meters. I still have, I still have photos of it. I remember like being up in our, um, our dorm, and looking down at one point, because there was like this, you know, like short loop that you could run inside the village. I remember looking down, like seeing you running in the village. And it was very like surreal for me at the time to just yeah. to just be there and to know like that, you know, that you were there and to to watch you compete. It like kind of felt like a, a bit of a fairy tale. And I don't mean that in, you know, a disparaging way at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, to be honest with you, it, it was like something that it definitely like I was, I think the one thing that was so fun about being at the Olympics was just being able to connect with so many people that I had not connected for so many years. Uh, 
you know, people who were sending high school friends who I had just started running with were sending me messages, you know, friends in Cape Verde. I think just it drew a lot of inspiration from people, um, if anything. Um, and I think it definitely allowed me a platform to be able to share my story with others in Cape Verde, uh, especially from my hometown. Uh, it allowed me to share the story uh, with the people from Boston, you know, from my high school, the city of Boston, um, people that I, I used to run with when I began my, my running in Boston. Um, and I think, you know, until this day, it definitely uh, it has allowed me to kind of share what my experience has been like, because I think when people think Olympics, they think everybody's kind of like you're, you're born like a superstar athlete who most likely you think you go to the Olympics. But a lot of times it's not like that. There are people who are, you know, running 205 marathons who will never go to the Olympics, but then you have people who run 220 who will go. Uh, and there's different things that happen in between. And I think everybody there has a story to be able to tell and share with others. Um, you know, the inspiration behind it. I think it's, um, for me, I appreciated having that opportunity to share that experience uh, with Gary and everyone else. And even now here at UMass Lowell, you know, when I see, you know, freshmen, uh, you know, running around campus and they recognize me and we can, I can sit down and have a conversation with them and kind of share my thoughts and experience. Okay, so we got about five minutes left. I'm going to combine the last two things that I wanted to talk about in one question, uh, even though they're not directly related. But in addition to everything that you do that we've discussed over the course of this episode, you have a foundation, which you mentioned earlier, but we haven't dug very deeply into and you also have a coaching company lowell running yes i do where you coach well just rebranded to port running now oh no way what was behind the rebranding yeah. uh i just moved to the, a different area so newburyport that uh, makes sense i guess uh port running. okay so no longer lowell running now it's port running but <laughs> you and your team of coaches work with a wide range of age group athletes i mean one of the themes that's developed throughout this conversation uh from the very beginning is you certainly keep yourself busy seem to manage your time pretty well to do all the things that you want to do why are those two pursuits important to you and things that you want to invest your time and energy into that's a great question i think having a foundation has allowed me to stay connected with with my homeland uh, where i was born it has allowed me to inspire kids, uh, but also most importantly, it's allowed me to give back. Um, not just you know giving back as in equipment, but just giving back in the message. Uh, being in Cape Verde, being you know growing up there, things are a lot different. There's just not a lot of opportunities. So for a kid to to get a pair of shoes from our foundation, it means a lot. It means that you know maybe they don't have to. Uh, you, you know, instead of buying a pair of shoes for going to school now, or for running, now they have an extra pair that they can wear for running. So um, I stay connected uh, in that regard to try to inspire kids, uh, motivate them to, to do good things in the community and guide them in the right path. Because I know that there is an intersection between uh, being, you know, being a runner and the things that you can learn, the values that you can run bring from running into community building and engagement and being a good uh, citizen. So that's why I still, I keep the foundation going. 
And right now, um, you know, my role as part of the foundation is I collect a lot of different, uh, whether it's equipment, shoes, um, you know, school supplies, and I send them to Boston where my, my dad packages them. And then he sends them to Fall River. And from Fall River, um, they get delivered to to Cape Verde. And then we have someone in Cape Verde because it's a foundation. We don't have to pay a lot of the extra um, charges. And uh, from there, you know, they get distributed for those kids who need, uh, who need shoes to run or school supplies. Because there are a lot of kids in Cape Verde that actually, you know, you see them running barefoot. And I think sometimes that could be a little spark in them interest in wanting to do uh, to do running or track and field. So and it's called the Senka foundation. Sansa, Sansa foundation. Sansa yes. Foundation. And the second part of that was coaching. Yes. So for the coaching is, I think, you know, one thing that definitely drew me to coaching is that, you know, first off, I was having a lot of people just ask me, Hey, can you send me a schedule? What I can do? And I think you probably, you know, hear the same too, mm-hmm. as, as a coach, people want to ask you. And I think, the one thing, the message that I wanted to send to to people is that, like, just because you are not a professional runner does not mean you can't do a lot of the things that professional runners do. Because there are a lot of the workouts that are very similar. And all you're really doing is adjusting the, whether it's, um, I call it the volume, uh, the intensity, or the density in how your workouts are spaced. Obviously, as a runner, if you're a professional runner, you're able to do, you know, whether it's three workouts a week or two workouts a week. So your density of how you're doing your training can be different. And your volume it might be a little more and your intensity is going to be different. So what I was trying to do is just basically use what I know, what professional runners do, and translate that to the, the you know, the training that a person who has a full-time job, who cannot run on a Sunday, who they have to... Uh, certain things that they have to do in their schedule and try to plug these things in in a way that actually fits their lifestyle mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. Because I think a lot, of, a lot of the times coaches are trying to just give athletes a schedule that they see online and then the athlete is literally trying to mimic every single thing on there. But I wanted to focus on actually build, like getting to know the athlete, knowing what, what their schedule is like, what do, they, what do they do on a daily basis, how much time they have, and actually custom make schedules for them in a, in a way that they knew like, okay, if I, if I take a day off here, I'm still getting the full maximization of the schedule to my own lifestyle. Or if I have to travel from this day to, another, to this day for work, I know, like, I know what to give them. Like, I know, okay, there's no track there. Let me give them a fart-like workout that they can do on the roads. So those kind of things that I wanted to make it easier for them to be able to understand. And I also wanted to make it so that a lot of the workouts that they do, I have done every single one of those workouts. So I kind of have, like, that experience of what it should feel like. But now I'm not saying I'm a, you know, sports physiologist or anything like that but there are those things that you just learn from experience i appreciate that approach it's very similar to my own and i love everything that you're doing and that you're involved in from the coaching to the foundation to just you know being a a role model for people in your communities in lowell where you know you still work newburyport where you call 
home now, inner city of Boston, where you grew up and back home on Cape Verde. And it's been a real honor, Ruben, to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario. It's been great uh, to be on the podcast. I love hearing your podcast in the morning when I'm driving to work. And a lot of the stories are very inspiring. And I hope mine can be inspiring for some others listening to as well. I know that it will be. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to New Balance for helping make it possible. The new Fresh Foam X More V4 is a maximum cushion shoe with a responsive ride that I'm really enjoying for recovery runs right now. It's super plush, but also incredibly light. You can check it out at newbalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He has produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, also called The Morning Shakeout, at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.